Good morning. I'm Rob. I'm one of the pastors, and it's just really great to have you worshiping with us on this uh, Sunday in the end of June. And I just want to give you just a quick uh, announcement, and then we'll, we'll jump into our message this morning. Um, many of you have, have been wondering, we're in the middle of what's called a kind of a blue envelope campaign, whereby we've been asking people to bring an extra financial gift on the last Sunday of every month, and we take those funds and we put them towards our mortgage. Now, our mortgage is closed, which means we can't make on any payments on it right now, so we're saving up some money because it's becoming due in August. And when it comes due in August, we want to put down as much money as we can on it uh, to pay it off more quickly. And so we just wanted to let you know that that window for making donations towards that is closing, and uh, we've been doing this Blue Envelope Sunday at the last Sunday of every month. We're going to be really gracious and generous and let you give any Sunday you like towards it uh, between now and the end of July. Uh, you know, just a word of thanks. Um, we've collected to this point already 175,000. Our goal is, uh, you know, in the 250 range. Um, so if you're thinking of making a donation, we just let you know that that, that window is now. Um, and I want to remind you too that we have so many other things that we want to be doing as a church. Uh, there's so many opportunities for us as a congregation to be ministering to our city and to our community. So the sooner that we can uh, deal with this mortgage, uh, the better, and we can be on towards, towards ministry. So I'll let you know as well that on July 22nd, we'll be having a short congregational meeting at the end of our 10 a.m. service just to give you the information about what we're going to do with our mortgage, and we'd like a, a congregational vote on that. Someone asked me the other day, Rob, what happens if the church votes no for the new mortgage? I said, well, they can bring their checkbooks, and we'll just pay it off in one shot, I guess. That's really the only other option. So, uh, but we want you to be here uh, for that July 22nd. Um, so thank you so much. Early in January of this year, so January of this year, a friend of mine was speaking at a church in Nova Scotia, and before the service, he was looking through the flyers and the brochures in that church's lobby. He noticed in the list of brochures of that church there was a course offering for youth ministry class uh, taught by Rob Nyland, uh, going to be launching in January of 2005. This was in January of 2018. So he took a picture of the brochure in the rack and texted it to me, and the caption of his text said this, and people wonder why the church is seen as irrelevant. <laughs> 12 years overdue, sitting in this track rack, is this course advertisement. The church being irrelevant is actually one of the stereotypes. I don't need to tell you this. You're aware of this. If you have unchurched friends or family members, this is something that they raise with you. And we're not going to get into whether that's fair, whether it's accurate, or anything like that this morning. But here's why relevance matters. Because when people see the church as irrelevant, they assume then God is also irrelevant. If you show up to a church that's stuck in a 1950s time warp, what confidence does it give you that the Lord can speak into your life today? People wonder, is faith relevant for my daily life? And this is the question that your neighbors are wondering. It's the question that some of you who have young adult kids, that's what they're wondering. Is faith really matter? Is it really relevant for my life? And does Jesus even care about the things that are going on in my life? And one of the reasons that we know that he does and that faith is incredibly relevant is because of a prayer that Jesus gave his disciples to teach called the Lord's Prayer. We started looking at it a little bit last week. It's a prayer that outlines how we can come to God and speak to him about the things that we face every day. I want to read it to you this morning. I'll ask that you just listen as I read it for you. 
and then uh, we'll jump in and look at the second half of it. This is Jesus' words in Matthew's gospel. Teaching his disciples to pray, he gave them these phrases. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We looked at the first half of that prayer last week, and we looked at the phrase, three phrases, one, our Father, which sets the tone for the entire prayer, and it tells us how we can approach God. We don't come to God as an employee to his boss or a criminal before a judge. We are given permission to come into God's presence as a daughter before her dad or a son before his father. Because this is how God wants us to relate to him. And I asked you the question last week, what is it that you picture when you pray? And how would it change your prayer time if you pictured yourself sitting down with God as your heavenly father and were able to speak to him in that kind of a way? We then looked at the next phrase, hallowed be your name. Someone's name is their reputation, their brand, so to speak. And that reputation becomes more and more precious the more we get to know the Lord. The more time we spend with him, the more we discover him, and his name grows greater in our life. So to pray that the Lord's name would be hallowed or holy or unique to us is to say, God, fill my life with so many great encounters with you that my understanding of you just keeps growing until it overflows. Then we looked at the phrase, thy kingdom come, that extends this incredible offer for you and I to be able to download some of heaven into our lives today. The three phrases I want us to look at this morning, first of all, is this one. Give us this day our daily bread. Or the simple prayer, God, would you be my provider? Martin Luther in the 16th century was once asked what daily bread meant. What does that include? And he answered, everything we need for our bodily well-being. So bread is not a metaphor for some kind of spiritual ecstatic experience, although that is great. It's tangible. It's the tangible day-to-day needs that you and I have. He went on to give a list of his things that he prays for. He said, food, drink, clothes, shoes, a godly spouse, honest kids, good weather, peace, health, law, order, faithful friends, and kind neighbors. And maybe some of you struggle praying with some of these items. Maybe you're okay praying for somebody else's health, but you're not so sure about praying for your own health. How about praying for shoes if you need shoes? And here's where I would bring you back to this question, what do you picture when you pray? If you picture yourself as kind of a criminal praying before a judge, then asking for shoes seems ridiculous. But if Jesus has invited you to pray to your heavenly Father, coming before him and saying, I need shoes and don't have the means, is a perfectly legitimate thing that we can pray about. And Jesus gave you permission to speak to him about the daily things that you need. So what's your daily bread? Maybe you're looking at your kids and realizing, I'm going to have a teenager before summer's out. That might need some prayer. Maybe you're facing a financial challenge that's almost crippling you. Maybe you're trying to decide, how much longer do I stay in this job and do I take this new opportunity? Or maybe you're facing a situation, a mess of your own making. And you've got yourself convinced that because I made this mess, I need to clean it up myself. And you're wondering, can I bring that to the Lord? 
And again, it depends what do you picture when you pray. If God is your loving Heavenly Father, then you can come to Him and speak to Him about these very things. I think one of the beautiful truths that we discover in prayer is that the point is not whether we get what we want. It's whether we're learning about what God really wants for us. One of the confessions of the early church said this, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we will learn to withdraw our trust from all other things and place them on our Heavenly Father alone. Learning to pray is about learning to be reminded where is it that my daily bread comes from. One of the first fruits of prayer is that we begin to recognize that the Lord loves us, He cares for us, and He wants to take care of us. So today, in like 40 minutes, when you're sitting down before lunch, whether it's something delicious off the barbecue, whether it's leftovers from like a week ago, or something you grabbed in the drive-thru, you pause. And you remember, this food is a symbol, a daily reminder that the Lord's looking after me, that he sees my needs and that he meets them. The second line I want us to look at is this one, cancel our debts. Now, the word debts has been translated differently. You might have it as transgressions in your Bible or sins. It's a word that comes from the world of commerce. So let me appeal to all of you accountants and Excel spreadsheet lovers in the room today. It paints the picture of looking at an Excel spreadsheet with a long list and column of numbers, very big numbers that all add up to one giant number at the bottom. And that giant number at the bottom, Jesus cancels and replaces it with a zero. He cancels our debts. Now, Origen um, who lived in the second century, talked about three different kinds of debts that we accumulate, because you might be wondering, what are my debts? And he says, the first is our indebtedness to the Lord because of our sins. And Jesus reminds us that our list of those sins might be longer than we might imagine. Jesus was speaking to a group of Pharisees one time who thought that their list was, well, pretty short. They'd cleaned up their act quite nicely. And then, because they weren't murdering, they weren't committing adultery, And Jesus reminds them in Matthew chapter 5, it's not the person that just commits these things. It's the person that thinks these things in their mind and in their heart that is also guilty of them. And suddenly, their list grew. We have a growing list of debts that we have towards our Lord because of our sins to him. But then he says there's also those things, those debts that we're indebted to others. Um, People in our lives, maybe your parents, siblings, co-workers, neighbors, people that we've harmed. Finally, he talks about the debt that we owe to ourselves, to our body for the way we abuse it, for our mind, for the things that we put in it, for our soul, for the way that we neglect it through our busy schedules. I don't know how many of you were kind of keeping track of your own tally as I went through that list, but it creates a problem for us, a serious problem. Because a perfect and holy God cannot have us sitting at a table talking with him when we carry around with us that kind of indebtedness. And so when we read these words, that Jesus invites us to pray, forgive us our debts. It's a beautiful thing because it comes at his expense. I love this passage in the book of Colossians. It says this, You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. 
Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Forgive us our debts. And Jesus makes it possible for you and I to experience that. Now, this line has a second half to it. And it would be really nice if we could just skip, it o- skip over it and pretend that it's not there. But let me just say something short about it because it says that we should forgive our debtors. Let me just kind of paint a picture for you. When we don't offer forgiveness to other people, what we're saying is, Lord, I stand before you with my long list of debt and I receive the forgiveness that you give to me and cancel that out and give me that zero. I stand under your mercy and I stand under your grace and I receive all of that and I thank you for it. But this person over here, I want them to stand before you on their own two feet. And I don't want mercy for them and I don't want grace for them. I want justice for them. And Jesus says to us, when you have experienced the forgiveness that comes from me, a sign that you are my child is that you are now extending that forgiveness towards other people. Are there people in your life that need to be forgiven? People of whom you are asking to stand under God's judgment without his mercy and without his grace. The third line, rescue us or deliver us from temptation. If forgiveness is looking back, asking for help in matters of temptation is looking ahead. It's looking to the future and probably reminding us that if we'd prayed this prayer sooner, we'd have fewer debts to cancel. When I think about this prayer, because my mind is small, um, I think about driving around New York City. How many of you have ever driven south and you have to go around New York City? And how many of you have prayed the prayer, Lord, please help me not to get lost and not to get broken down in a tough neighborhood? Have you prayed this prayer? This is the prayer of the disciple who says, lead me not into temptation. It's acknowledging, Lord, I am prone to wander. And there are places that I often end up that cause me great harm. It's an advanced prayer for help that says, Lord, keep me from coming into and under the influence of the evil one in this world and darkness. Maybe it's the prayer we pray as we're driving to work. Lord, Deliver me from the temptation to be a gossip in the staff room today. Lord, as, you, as we head to school, Lord, keep me from the temptation of pretending to be somebody that I'm not. Or Lord, keep me from the temptation of thinking that every single resource that I have is simply for me. And I love that Jesus is not the least bit surprised that we will be tempted. And right from the get-go, he lays it out there and says, you're going to need this prayer. Now, it has this word in here, deliver us. And the word deliver literally paints the picture of being snatched. Um, older brothers walking through the house, younger brothers walking by with a cookie, older brother snatches the cookie out of the hand. That's kind of the image. The more powerful one steals from the less powerful one. And I think it's a great image as you think about yourself being in moments of temptation. That the Lord is powerful. And he can rescue you in that moment. That when you get into those situations and you're suddenly caught of, man, I'm here and this is not good, and you pray for the Lord, he can deliver you. He's got the power to reach in and to snatch you out and to give you the assistance that you need in that moment. And this week, if you find yourself in one of those moments, remember these words, remember that image, the Lord is strong and he can deliver you. 
So these are the kind of things that Jesus gives you permission and the tools and the invitation to be praying about. Provision, forgiveness, and help with temptation. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up as we, as we close here this morning. And I want us to kind of just end on one final thought. This past summer at our annual Baptist convention called Oasis, uh, Rick Tobias was one of our speakers. Uh, Rick works with Young Street Mission in Toronto. It's serving street people. And one of the lines that he used in, um, in one of his talks just has stayed with me. And he said this, We have to make peace with the chaos. We have to make peace with the chaos. And he was saying, especially in my line of work, if you want everything to be neat and tidy in your life, you'll never be able to serve people. At some point, you have to give up this notion that you can control every circumstance in life, and you just have to be content getting to know people and loving them. And I've been thinking about that and how that applies to our prayer life as well. Prayer is not about getting God to do everything we want and to fix all of our circumstances and make everything neat and tidy. The greatest gift of prayer is getting to know your Heavenly Father so well that no matter the chaos, no matter the circumstances, you can have peace because you know who He is. You know that He loves you. You know that he has made himself available to you no matter the chaos that you might be facing. And I love that. And that's our hope for you as you pray that you would come to know the Lord in that way. That no matter the circumstances, no matter the situation, you would know you can sit down at the table with your Heavenly Father and speak to him about the very things that you need. We're going to close this morning in prayer. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to lead you in a little exercise. So uh, ask for your mercy here. But would you close your eyes and bow your heads as we pray together and close our service? I want you to picture your Heavenly Father sitting at your kitchen table, waiting for you to join Him. He pulls out a chair, He invites you to sit down, and He invites you to speak to Him. And you say, Father, thank you for who you are for all that you have done for me. Thank you for those moments that you teach us about who you are. And may there be so many more of them in my life that your name would just continue to grow. And God, may my life be filled with your will and with your desires. God, today I have many needs. Some are big, some are small. And you know what I need for this day, so please help me. And Lord, you've seen my actions and my thoughts and my heart. Clean it. Make me brand new. And help me to offer that same gift to others. Finally, keep me from myself, from the evil one, and from undoing the work that you are doing in me so that your name would be great in my life in my church, in my community. Amen.